bottom line is once again strong earnings. We know earnings drive long-term stock gains, and fortunately, that's what we've been seeing. You know, in the first quarter, we saw 26% year-over-year earnings growth. The second quarter is looking like we're going to hit right about 25% year-over-year. So we can get into peak earnings and what does that mean. The bottom line, though, 25% year-over-year earnings growth, really strong. Welcome to LPL Financial's Market Signals Podcast. I'm John Lynch, Chief Investment Strategist at LPL Research, and today I'm here with Ryan Dietrich, Senior Market Strategist at LPL. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning, John. Welcome to be back and looking forward to a fun day. Yeah, I'm excited. We've got uh, a lot more to discuss this week as we've done in past weeks. Uh, I guess first and foremost, we want to cover earnings. We'll want to discuss the Federal Reserve and uh, monetary policy impacts, and we'd certainly like to talk about the market having hit new highs most recently, many of the major indices, three of the past top four indices, and I'm sure we have some currency impacts to discuss as well. So why don't we start off with with earnings? We've seen some really good numbers, and uh, Ryan, would you like to talk about second quarter? Yeah, John, I will. So that's right. So earnings season is wrapping up. I believe there's about 15 companies left to report, and the bottom line is once again strong earnings. We know earnings drive long-term stock gains, and fortunately, that's what we've been seeing. You know, in the first quarter, we saw 26% year-over-year earnings growth. The second quarter is looking like we're going to hit right about 25% year-over-year. So we can get into peak earnings and what does that mean. The bottom line, though, 25% year-over-year earnings growth, really strong. Uh, the other thing, you know, you can argue maybe. I don't want to get too out there. But you can say maybe there's financial engineering. Maybe you can kind of fudge earnings a little bit. But revenue, John, was up still 10%, like 9.9%. It's tough to fudge that one. So really strong earnings. Economy looks good. And revenue also really up strongly. Yeah, I think that's an important point to make because uh, a lot of investors are seeing coverage that is suggesting it's all due to tax cuts. And if you look at earnings before interest and taxes or EBITDA taken depreciation and amortization as well, uh, we're still seeing very good numbers. And I think that's important for investors to keep in mind. As you mentioned, very strong sales growth. Uh, margins are very important as well. You see some of the weakness in the commodity space, which kind of disappoints many of us. Uh, if you look at copper, for example, as a forward-looking indicator. Nonetheless, if you factor in the weaker commodity situation, as well as the absence of threatening wage growth, those are the primary uh, costs of doing business for U.S. businesses. I think that also bodes well for continued profit growth. That's right. You mentioned something important I want to focus on. So, we know tax reform is a big reason why earnings have been strong. Even if you take out the benefits of tax reform, we're still looking at 18 to 19 percent earnings growth in the second quarter. So this isn't just all because of tax reform. Sure, that helps. We get it. But there's definitely some other factors of strength underlying in the economy there. One other thing, there's 11 sectors, the S&P 500, all 11 are looking at positive year of earnings growth in the second quarter. So we talk about market breadth, so to speak. Well, there's market breadth when it comes to earnings, as various sectors have been doing well. And once again, who really led? Technology. I mean, they're the biggest group, probably the most influential in the S&P 500. Technology had a really strong earnings season yet again. Absolutely. And when we wrote our 2018 market outlook, we called it return of the business cycle, not to suggest that it was the early innings of the cycle, as you know, uh, but more to suggest that we had a return to the normal drivers of the business cycle when you think about whether it be fiscal policy, transitioning from monetary leadership with the Fed just cutting rates, for example, tax cuts, uh, reduced regulatory burdens, increased government spending. So when you look at, to your point, about the broader market, it's not just fangs. We're looking at all 11 sectors contributing from a profit standpoint. 
But also keep in mind that those beneficiaries, whether it be financials, industrials, energy, uh, technology, uh, small caps, you're seeing leadership from all those areas, particularly given the industries within those segments, if you will, of the market that are benefiting from the regulatory environment, the fiscal environment, as well as the government spending environment. That's right, John. Maybe I'll wrap it up like this. This is going to be the 37th quarter in a row now that the actual earnings came in better than the estimates. So it's pretty amazing when you think about it. That's a long time. But at the same time, we've gone a while so far uh, during this uh, podcast. I haven't mentioned trade worries yet. I think we did good by ignoring them so far. But the bottom line, though, John, if you look at what companies are saying going out four quarters, actually increase this uh, this recent earnings season. That's rare. Usually it goes down 2 to 3%. So trade worries are there, but really corporate America didn't seem too concerned this earnings season with trade worries. What do you think about that? Absolutely. Because yeah, the trade war, certainly, uh, I think many investors are viewing it more as a negotiating tactic, if you will. Uh, but nonetheless, we have to be mindful of the fact what that could do for sentiment, what that could do for uh, CapEx plans, maybe some business are holding back. We're seeing some of that. Um, and we'll get into the Fed in a minute because that's some of the concern of Fed officials. But you mentioned something about peak earnings, and I think it's terribly important to get this point across to investors. If we grew 24% in the first quarter, 25% in the second quarter, there's a lot of concern as to whether or not we're actually peaking in earnings. It's terribly important for investors to recognize that a peak in the rate of growth in earnings on a year-over-year basis is not a peak in profitability. Uh, we're still looking at up to 10% profit growth next year. Yes, it's down from 25% on a year-over-year basis. However, 10% is still a good number. It's still a premium to historical averages. And as you know, Ryan, when we wrote our mid-year outlook, the plot thickens for 2018, uh, our research team highlighted that uh, over the past 10 cycles, you could have a peak in year-over-year percentage growth in profitability, yet historically over 10 cycles, we found that it took almost four years for the economy to slip into recession after that peak in profitability. And perhaps most important is the market reaction during that four-year period, where it's certainly not a straight line. Market cumulatively had gained uh, north of 50%. That's right. You know, a lot of positives there when you look about earnings. So let's change gears for a second, John. Clearly, last week was big from Feder- from the Fed, the Federal Reserve. We had Fed minutes on Wednesday. The Jackson Hole Symposium was on Friday. You know, which way you want to go with this? I mean, you want to come talk about a little bit about both of them, or what were your main takeaways last week with the Fed and kind of how it relates to our investors that are listening here? Sure. I think the most important thing was Jackson Hole. Uh, guys like you and I love reading the Fed minutes, but I know that's not as popular for, you know, the average investor. Uh, but the Jackson Hole speech was very important because uh, new Fed chair Jerome Powell, it was his first opportunity to speak at this illustrious conference. Uh, one that you and I failed to get an invite to yet again, I should point out. Uh, sure, next year. Always next year. That's right. And we can always count on that next year. But Jerome Powell, when he gave a speech, you know, this is something we've talked about with our investors previously. And, you know, I've joked to a degree about the fact that uh, Jay Powell is the first Fed chair since Paul Volcker, who's unburdened by the expectations of a PhD in economics. So he's not focusing entirely on econometric models. He has a, uh, he's an attorney. He has been in uh, uh, some regulatory aspects. He has been on Wall Street. He had been in private equity. So he's, he's, he's more of a uh, market savvy Fed 
chair, where I certainly believe we needed the econometric models uh, during quantitative easing under Fed Chair Bernanke and Fed Chair Yellen. I think having uh, more of a market-savvy type leader at the Fed right now will be terribly important because uh, the, the, the yield curve is sending signals, the economy is sending signals, and the currency is sending signals that uh, the Fed Chair has to really be mindful of. And uh, the fact that uh, Chair Powell on Friday in his speech talked about the gradual approach uh, was perhaps more dovish than many anticipated, and uh, we think that's a benefit going forward. That's right. So this week, actually, in our weekly economic commentary, John, we are going to write about just this, the Fed minutes kind of takeaway in the Jackson Hole Symposium takeaway. And I'll just kind of read the last line of what we wrote here. We said, Powell's approach is cautious and measured, which we believe greatly reduces the Fed's chances of a policy mistake. You know, one other th- theme that we saw on Friday in his speech was the word flexibility. Mm-hmm. You know, again, he doesn't seem like, yes, is there going to be t- one more rate hike in September? We all agree that's probably the case. Will there be one in December? When you talk about, as we did last week with the turkey issues, merger market issues, maybe there won't be a fourth one. And it doesn't seem like he's going to be burdened by that because, again, he's using that flexibility. What do you think? Will there be? There's one more in September, we agree. Do you think we'll get one in December? Yeah. September's a lock. It's about a 90% certainty uh, in the Fed Fund's future market, probably only about a 60% certainty for December. You know, a lot will come into the, the midterm elections, how strong the dollar is. Uh, uh, you know, what's the market reaction uh, to the elections? What's the market reaction to Turkey? What's the market reaction to, to uh, you know, uh, emerging market performance? And I think that's something, again, again, not being burdened by a PhD in economics. Uh, some of the things we need to keep in mind, the Fed's mandate officially by Congress, as laid out by Congress, is that they have to keep a lid on inflation and to basically ensure as full an employment situation as possible. Yet a third uh, assumed or presumed mandate unofficially is the currency, right? That the Fed can't jack up rates too high. That would make our dollar get too strong, which would negatively impact. And we saw this over the past couple of weeks with Turkey. Turkey's a very small economy. Why did it make headlines? Well, because, you know, Turkey is running a current account deficit, uh, emerging markets, by extension, have $4.5 trillion in dollar-denominated debt taken out over the past decade. So if their currencies get so weak that they have difficulty servicing $4.5 trillion dollar-denominated debt, that's something Powell wants to prevent. And in addition, you have to think about the humanitarian issue uh, with food and energy costs. You know, Food represents maybe 10% of our consumer pricing index in the West, but in the East, it represents more than a third so Powell can't really put emerging central bankers in a position where they have to raise rates to support their currencies so their people can eat. So I think it's going to be we have to be mindful of that, and I think Fed Chair Powell is. Very, very interesting dynamics for sure. There was one thing, John, I wanted to touch on. So we talked about Jackson Hole, but from the Fed minutes, I thought this was pretty powerful. And again, this is directly from the Fed minutes. All participants pointed to the ongoing trade disagreements and proposed trade measures as an important source of uncertainty and risks. That sentence was the only recorded moment in the entire meeting that every single participant actually agreed on something. So, you know, it, it's rare to see really anyone and everyone always agree, but clearly the trade concerns are something the Fed is actively paying attention to. Yeah, it's it's rare to have, uh, you know, uh, unanimity in any any policy meeting, but you certainly have that relative to trade. And I think... Fed officials are concerned, A, about the sentiment impact 
they recognize what Congress and fiscal legislators have finally begun to enact measures to run commensurate with historically low interest rates over the past decade. Uh, so if you look at what tariffs would do for consumer purchasing power, business and investor sentiment, CapEx plans, uh, it's certainly noteworthy uh, to gain policymakers' uh, attention. And then you just, you know, look at looking at the history uh, in the late 1930s when Smoot-Hawley really was the death knell to any recovery. Uh, we had already seen a few policy mistakes with higher taxes and Fed raising interest rates too soon after the Great Depression and then Smoot-Hawley tariffs, really uh, that that protectionist stance really extended the duration of the Great Depression. So consequently, I think historians, market historians are very mindful of that. And uh, I suspect Fed Chair Powell is very, very aware of that. And we don't believe that the Fed is going to be as aggressive as the market fears, even with the yield curve. Right. So when you talk about the yield curve, John, let's maybe go to rapid fire here. We're going to talk about the U.S. dollar and the yield curve, how it all kind of relates. So the U.S. dollar, it plays a big impact clearly in earnings and specifically international earnings. I know you did a perspective provider on Twitter talking about this just last week. What were your takeaways kind of on the U.S. dollar here and how it impacts things? Yeah, I think on the dollar, we have to be mindful that, uh, you know, it is the largest, most liquid, uh, supported by the most creditworthy, you know, government out there. So you can't lose sight of as many term it king dollar. Um, there, there has been concern. Uh, the broadest measure of the dollar is the DXY. That's gone from 88 to 95 or 96 in recent months. And we've seen a preponderance of articles related to a strong dollar. And uh, I wouldn't characterize a DXY of 95 as a strong dollar. I mean, 2000, when the DXY was 120, that was a strong dollar in, in my estimation. The dollar in our estimation now is less weak, simply less weak than it has been over the past decade. But nonetheless, the dollar has impact to multinationals, whereby um, uh, currency translation plays a big role when those dollars are converted back into uh, profits domestically. So that is one risk the Fed has to be mindful of, not raising rates so much that the dollar gets too strong that it can impact corporate profitability. But that clearly is not the Fed's concern. It's not corporate earnings that the Fed's concerned about. But they have to be mindful of you know, if the dollar gets strong, that is good for inflation, right, because you're importing less inflation. Uh, but the bigger issue, I think, has to do, uh, again, on the humanitarian side, food and energy costs in the emerging world for 6 billion people. But also, uh, Fed Chair Powell does not want to cause, uh, you know, an additional global financial crisis by the inability of emerging currencies to service debt on that $4.5 trillion. So the dollar is very important. Uh, we questioned whether or not uh, the Fed or Fed chair would acknowledge the dollar as a uh, third mandate unofficially. He did not do that, but it seems like his actions are doing so. And then we also have to be mindful of the, the People's Bank of China over the weekend announced that they were going to have further support for the yuan. So to the degree that is less impactful to dollar strength, the Fed is... Uh, appears to be more dovish or less hawkish, uh, given Powell and some of the interviews we saw from Fed officials at Jackson Hole. And then if you think about J 
just technically the the dollar, the DXY is facing resistance in that 96.97 area. Yeah, you talk about what the Bank of China did over the weekend or is rumored to potentially doing. The initial reaction's good. I mean, up over 2% their equity markets. Japan was up significantly also. So we've talked a lot about emerging markets have been hit. Commodities have been hit. China obviously has struggled. But could this kind of be a bottom potentially for China? That could be a positive for the overall global stock market, really, to have some more participation from the Far East. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, people can say the U.S. has already won the trade war. Right. You know, it can be a pyrrhic victory when you think of all the damage going into it. Uh, I'm not convinced that's the case, but I do think well, one thing we certainly know is that President Xi has a gig for life, <laughs> and we have a midterm election coming up in you know the better part of six weeks, eight weeks. So consequently, uh, we may not see any true traction on uh, tariffs with China until after the midterm election, but we're already seeing uh, improvement and uh, 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 with Mexico and NAFTA, Canada will likely rejoin the table once we clear something up with uh, Mexico imminently, it would appear. That's right. right. And then uh, we think that bodes well. So we had some new highs made last week. I think certainly uh, with the new highs, and you were smiling. I wish we had this on video because anytime you see new highs, Ryan with his strategy hat and his Mm -hmm. technician hat, you know, it's a double whammy. when, when you think about how the market's performing. But yes, we did have new highs last week in the Russell. We had new highs in the Russell 2000, small cap index. We had it in the S&P 500. We had it in the NASDAQ. But we also had it in the value line, which is really the geekiest of those four indices. We did not see it in the Dow just yet. But the fact that you have an equal weighted index of 1,700 domestic companies at a new high, uh, I think is a very, very positive development. Ryan, you've done exceptional work calling the next high in the market, given all your work on the advanced decline line and uh, emphasizing prophetically how we were able to uh, uh, reach a new high. And the fact that the equal weighted value line index reaching a new high, I think, is a very important uh, development because that tells investors it's not just the largest and sexiest technology companies, right? It is the, it is a broader measure of performance. And when you think about that equal weighting, that says the average stock is doing well. And I think that we could also keep in mind, you know, if you just want to look at the S&P 500, we're probably only four or 500 basis points above the 200-day moving average, which typically new highs are double that, right? We also have uh, fewer companies making three-month highs, even though we're at a record level. So that also could be some tailwinds. What are your thoughts? That's right. You know, the way I like to look at this is the S&P finally made a new high for the first time since January 20, January 26th of this year. Small caps and technology broke, broke out back in May. So there are a lot more small cap companies than there are large cap companies. The big argument we've heard, a knock on we've heard on this bull market, is only a few stocks are participating. The FANG stocks leading us higher. As we've been writing about and talking about for a while, That's not. I don't think that's the case. The NYSE advanced decline line is going higher. Small caps participating. Equal weighted technology indexes are also breaking out to new highs. So that's one clue that we thought that, yes, there will eventually be new highs made the second half of this year. But so we're there. Now, what does it mean? You know, we took a look, John, since 1950. There have been 18 times the S&P went six months or more without a new high. Over a six-month period. Over a six-month period. We just went seven months, approximately. After that first new high was made, a year later, 
The S&P was higher 17 of those 18 times, up about 12.5% on average. So just one way to look at it. But sometimes you go a while without a new high. It's just the market's way of consolidating. We gained 20% last year, gained 5% in January. A seven-month consolidation, in my opinion, is perfectly healthy. And now we're at new highs. So maybe uh, the bull is will continue here. And you say that turn that return is 12%. Just over 12 percent a year, out, right? Just and a, if you yes, look exactly. at eight percent, that's a fifty percent increase over historical it, it, averages. It is, and... is stronger across the board. Three, six, nine months later, you get stronger returns when you go a while. A while isn't six months or more without a new high. So and that's you, uh, positive. You've said many times, never short a dull market, right? And we have historical precedent where the economy can outperform the market, the curve can flatten, profits can grow above historically average levels, if you think about the mid-80 example and the 1994-95 example, right, where you see the economy, profits, and uh, outperform the market at, while the curve flattened, the ensuing year, the following year, was up by about a third. So we've got some uh, historical precedent there in addition to your great work that, uh, you know, we believe this thing still has legs. Yeah, and you talk about yield curve inverting. The 210 is kind of the Bible that we use when you talk about the yield curve. It inverted back in January 2006. And yes, that was a warning sign there was a recession coming, but there still were equity gains for another 18 months. History tells you you're going to have about 13 months or so after you see a yield curve inversion that you're going to have maybe potentially 20 25% continued gains over those coming, uh, coming years and months. So it's a concern. Nine of the last nine recessions all had an inverted yield curve ahead of time. Uh, so we're watching it closely, but when you look at profit, Profits continue to be strong. Uh, leading ind indices and, and indexes continue to be strong. Um, you know, there's still a lot more positives, we think. So what do you think about the so, yield curve? So nine of the last re nine recessions had an inverted yield curve Ahead prior of to that, right? That, that is correct. And mm -hmm. nine of the past four recessions were actually predicted by economists, correct? That's right. Exactly. So had that going for us. <laughs> yeah, and I think the curve, you know, you never want to say it's different this time. Right. But when the Fed quintuples its balance sheet, there is a dynamic, and global central banks have quintupled their balance sheets. There's a dynamic going on that at least fails to provide precedent. And if we see the short end of the curve, like we believe, the short end of the curve has been moving in anticipation of Fed activity. But we must be mindful of what's happening on the long end of the curve. Uh, there is a global valuation metric going on that we've not seen in previous examples. And I think that's more reflective of what the curve is telling us when global investors, even when you factor in currency hedging costs, global investors can look at the 10-year approaching 3%. They can look at the Japanese government bond, the JGB, around three basis points, or they can buy the German Bund at 30 basis points. Suddenly, the 10-year appears attractive to global investors, even if we would consider it expensive relative to historical average costs for the 10-year. So I think that's a dynamic going on that Again, uh, Fed Chair Powell uh, may use his market savvy to help him make uh, and Fed leaders to make decisions going forward because we're not we're not convinced it's pointing toward recession. Right. You know, we've taken a look at kind of what happens when the ten-year yield is in an uptrend versus a downtrend in mm -hmm. the stocks, and this is one of I think the more misunderstood things investors have seen over the past couple of years, really since you know. June of 2016, when the 10-year yield bottomed around 1.39%. Obviously, it's gone higher since then. People think higher rates, higher 10-year is bad. We look back in history, 
There are 23 periods of a higher 10-year yield. The S&P gained during 19 of them. So that's, if my math is right, almost 90% of the time. So normally a higher trending 10-year yield is actually a good thing if the economic data can suggest it and support it. And if we break, if the 10-year breaks above 3%, as long as it doesn't just rocket higher to 4 or 5% quickly, potentially we could once again continue to see higher equities along with the higher 10-year yield. Yeah, certainly don't want to be dismissive of the risks, but mm-hmm. when you have a flattening curve with rising interest rates, classic bear flattener for yes. the bond geeks out there, uh, that tends to be positive for equities. And the last time we saw a bear flattener was when? 94, 95, when you had the yield curve this low. So that's another positive. So, John, I think we're kind of getting close to the end. We're going to maybe, I've got one more question for you. Sure. I'm going up to Ohio this weekend for Labor Day. Um, I have three weddings, Friday night, Saturday afternoon, and Sunday evening. Are you, think you, get, ever are you see getting married three times? Uh, no, I've been married once, and that was plenty. I'm still married. I don't mean it like good, that. Good. But but three weddings in three days. Think you'll ever see me again? Will I, will I, may, will I survive this weekend? Well, we may have to cancel next week's podcast. I'm not sure. <laughs> find, a, find another guest. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Hopefully there won't be any video of you dancing at these three weddings. Oh, that's a problem with weddings anymore, right? Everyone's recording everything. So I hope not. I Ryan, hope not. Ryan's going yeah. viral. So right. it should be a big week. Not only Ryan on the dance floor at three weddings. Hopefully you won't pull a hammy. Yeah. But we will see uh, core personal consumption expenditures index. I don't expect you all to be as excited about that as I am. But that is the Fed's leading uh, inflation indicator. And be mindful that just because the Fed's leading preferred measure is at 2%, that is not runaway inflation. That is purely price stability. We'll get another consumer confidence, uh, near record levels, cycle highs uh, this week, and I think that'll be important as well. And Ryan, I want to wish you a good week and safe travels. Well, that's it for this episode. Join us next week when we'll continue to analyze and discuss market signals. Stay connected by following us on Twitter, at LPL, or at LPL Research. LPL Market Signals is presented and produced by LPL Financial. I'm John Lynch. And I'm Ryan Dietrich. Thanks, everyone. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide or to construed as providing specific investment advice or recommendations for any individual security. Any economic forecast set forth in this podcast may not develop as predicted, and there can be no guarantee the strategies promoted will be successful. All performance reference is historical and is no guarantee of future results. Investing involves risks, including potential loss of principal. No investment strategy or risk management technique can guarantee return or eliminate risk in all market environments. All information referenced in the podcast is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. This research material was prepared by LPL Financial, LLC, securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA, and SIPC. To the extent you are receiving investment advice from a separately registered independent investment advisor, please note that LPL Financial is not an affiliate of and makes no representation with respect to such entity. The investment products sold through LPL Financial are not insured deposits and are not FDIC, NCUA insured. These products are not bank credit union obligations and are not endorsed, recommended, or guaranteed by any bank, credit union, or any government agency. The value of this investment may fluctuate. The return on the investment is not guaranteed and loss of principal is possible.